Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. As time has gone on, one of Star Trek's key challenges has been that time has gone on. Take the eugenics wars. In 1967, the original series of Star Trek confidently asserted that the years 1992 to 1996 were dominated by a struggle for control over the Earth between genetic supermen, who at their height controlled a quarter of the world's population, caught beneath their genetically superior yoke. When Space Seed aired, the writers had absolutely no need to worry about whether this would create difficulties for an audience in 1992, or whether it would constrain future writers. That is because they had absolutely no reason to predict that Star Trek would still be in production by 1992, or that anyone would still be watching that episode by 1972, much less 20 years later. But then Star Trek went on, and on, and on. And so by the time we reached 1996, and the genetic supermen were nowhere to be found, Star Trek faced a dilemma. Was it more important to stay true to what had been said in 1967 about what the 90s were like, Khan, Nooni and Singh, ruling over a devastated Earth of vassals? Or should Star Trek depict the 1996 of Clintons, Game Boys and Skateboards? And that speaks to the tension we'll be addressing in today's episode. Part of Star Trek's power is that it presents a possible future for us. Not what idealised supermen from some other timeline could evolve into, but where we, as the audience, could one day head if we stay true to our ideals. And that goal requires the show to stay grounded in our reality and our history as far as possible. But equally, the show also relies on a consistent and detailed chronology as a backdrop. By maintaining internal continuity within itself, the show feels more real. And as time passes, that continuity becomes harder and harder to maintain, because events predicted by the show keep stubbornly refusing to happen. Because, and I stress this, it's just a TV show. Today, we'll be speaking about Star Trek as future history. How has Star Trek depicted our history, the history of the years and decades around or after its production? How has it been prophetic? How has it been wrong? And should Star Trek keep adjusting its own past to match our world, or should it stay true to the rich internal history it has created over the decades? Welcome back to the Merry Universe podcast. I'm Douglas McDonald-Norman. Yes, and I'm Adam Prosser. And yes, as Douglas said, we're going to be talking about uh, the future history of Star Trek. I also want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in uh, a couple episodes back, we talked about how our actual history was impacting Star Trek metaphorically and thematically. And um, we, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about how history evolves within the actual, um, diegetically within Star Trek, uh, which is something that's become a little more interesting just in the last year in Star Trek. Uh, but it is part of the show in general as well. Uh, it does deal with, you know, historical arcs and so forth often as a side thematic thing, uh, but Star Trek as a history of its its own uh, mythos has not been foregrounded until fairly recently, which is which is something I, I think uh, would be interesting to talk about. Uh, but anyway, so, but we are going to talk about, uh, uh, Douglas has got a little, uh, a, a little uh, guideline uh, of some of the events that are, that Star Trek claims are, are due uh, for us in the next uh a century or so. Um, one thing I did want to point out, uh, of course, one of the very first, th putting aside all the time travel stuff, of course, um, one of the things uh, I, I did want to mention uh, was um, uh, 
actually the episode that we named this particular episode off after uh, tomorrow's yesterday uh, is now famous for um, predicting uh, that uh, the moon landing would be in 1969 and it would happen on <laughs> I want to say a Tuesday the launch uh, but it was the d they matched the day that it would uh, not quite the exact date but the, the the day that it would launch on apparently um, so they were right about that one thing at least <laughs> they got they got that little element right. But uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you want to talk about some of the uh, the stuff we've got out, some of the the stuff that's supposed to happen in the Star Trek future. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. And you're future. absolutely right to point out that some of the original series predictions didn't fare that badly. When Star Trek has stuck to generalities about what the future looks like, it has often done pretty well. For example, in Assignment Earth, in to Star Trek the original series. A potted history of 1969 is provided, which assumes global turmoil and various ill-defined major political events. Focusing at that level of generality, it looks from a distance pretty much like 1969 did. Similarly, Star Trek has gained great press in the last few years for how eerily the Deep Space Nine two-parter past tense manages to map the broad contours of what living in the 2020s is like, of intense segregation of the rich and the poor, of growing class tensions as a major element in politics, and ultimately of the society separating a wealthy, privileged, technologically adept elite from a vast underclass kept in check through state power. Now, it may not be that the Bell Riots will actually happen in 2024, but on the pure level of power dynamics and on the level of what the world looks like in its broad contours, past tense looks pretty dead on. So Star Trek has tended to do pretty well when it's spoken about the future in terms of broad strokes. The difficulty has arisen when Star Trek has attached dates to things. And so let's briefly set out what Star Trek thought the future from its time of airing would look like. From 1992 to 1996, the Earth was dominated by the Eugenics Wars, a battle between a series of genetically enhanced supermen, superior to us in uh, strength and speed and intelligence, who ultimately would come to dominate a quarter of the Earth's population, ultimately to be brought down only through a series of internecine wars, foiled only when the last Superman vanished into space on a sleeper ship, the Botany Bay. I personally remember the eugenics wars extremely well, because they were such a major feature of growing up in country Australia in the 1990s. After all, our local Superman, Gus, was a kind but cruel ruler. Following the eugenics wars, Star Trek, witnessed, uh, Star Trek predicts a manned mission to Titan in 2018, led by Captain Sean Christopher, the son of the hero of Tomorrow is Yesterday. I don't personally remember any missions to Titan in 2018, but I was very busy that year and so it's entirely possible I missed it. After that, things get steadily darker, leading ultimately to World War III until around 2053. In 2050, by the end of World War III, 600 million people are dead and vast quantities of the world's population are irradiated. This era of darkness is punctuated only by first contact with the Vulcans in 2063. However, even that first contact does not of itself solve Earth problems. Even in the late 21st century, mankind is held in the grip of the post-atomic horror, a world in which lawyers are shot dead, and courts are nothing but cruel authoritarian farces. As a lawyer, I'm against that. <laughs> Ultimately, however, mankind climbs out of this pit of despair and crudely drawn stereotypes. A united Earth of most of the world's nations is achieved in or around 2113, ultimately leading up to the relatively optimistic portrait of human unification and a future free from poverty and disease that we can see even at its earliest stages by the time of Star Trek Enterprise in 2151. Some of this stuff could still happen. Much of it clearly has not. And so the first thing we're going to be talking about is how has Star Trek tried to explain why none of that happened? 
Sometimes it doesn't bother to try at all. For example, in the Star Trek Voyager two-part of Future's End, the show depicts a 1996 that looks pretty much exactly like the 1996 it aired in, and not like the 1996 swarming with genetic supermen. But sometimes, like in the Eugenics Wars books, Star Trek essays a much more ambitious project of suggesting that it happened, but we just weren't paying attention. Adam, just to start off, have you read the Eugenics Wars books? I have not, and I've been fascinated by them. I know they get uh, discussed a lot. You've you've mentioned them before. Uh, my understanding is they try to explain that the eugenics wars were essentially, <laughs> it sounds like kind of an Illuminati uh, secret conspiracy that uh, went on completely below the notice of most of Earth's population, if I understand this correctly. Yeah, it's very Illuminati-esque. Basically, it attributes everything in the 1980s and 1990s in some way to the life story of Khan, Noonie, and Singh and his fellow supermen. The Bhopal gas disaster of of the 1980s, I think, is attributed... It's certainly part of Khan's origin story, that that's how he gets adopted by Gary Seven and his assistant. But I think it's also tied into some sort of feuding between genetic supermen. But certainly the Rwandan genocide, the Balkans wars, um, French nuclear testing in the 1990s in the Pacific, everything is in some way attributable to this vast, decades-long spanning saga of genetic supermen. All happening beneath the notice of the world's population, but peeking through only when it manifested in violent conflict. So they're all all sort of controlling areas of the world and... You're launching secret battles against each other, is what you're saying. No. Um, so, so for example, the claim that Khan controlled a quarter of the Earth's population is attributed in part to his secret behind-the-scenes control of the government of India, plus other nations in South Asia. The uh, Yeah, it, it, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. I, well, sense in a fictional, <laughs> a science fictional sense, um, uh, that... And it's actually funny because one thing, in a sense, one thing that they got right uh, is the 90s was a real time of, you know, conspiracy theories and, you know, secret, uh, the idea of secret government controls and secret people ruling the world. Not that it ever went away, of course, but, you know, the the premillennial uh, obsession with, you know, stuff like the X-Files and all the secret. When, when, excuse me, when were they written, the uh, Eugenics Wars books? I'm looking that up as we speak. Um... The first one was written in 2001. The second one was published in 2002. But you're absolutely right. It is very much of the era of the X-Files. And on the level of you know, creativity and artistic achievement, it's really, really remarkable to take a few offhand references from a 1966 episode of TV and to turn it into Star Trek's equivalent of the X-Files. It is the best possible way that you could have carried out this concept. The question, really, that we have to discuss is, even if you can do this, should you? Isn't it, (laughs) frankly, pretty gross to suggest that all the human tragedy of the 1990s was not attributable to, for example, sectarian and religious hatred, but was instead because of a fictional TV Superman from 1966? Yeah, that's and that is. I mean, this is where this is where we delve into the problems of uh, con- the way conspiracy theories tend to be problematic in any context, uh, regardless of uh, compl- applying them to Star Trek or not, um, because it always means that you know the the real story is something you know other than what you'd heard, and that can create some some uh, some issues. Uh, that's the kind of thing we might talk about in a future episode uh, where we, we delve with some of that. But it is also true that, like, in attempting to... And this applies to a lot of stuff that's happened in Star Trek. Things like, you know, time travel episodes... Uh, you could talk about the, again the bell the past tense episodes of Deep Space Nine with the Bell Riots, which is a fictional thing, so it's a little more comfortable to talk about. But it's 
you know, it's ultimately Cisco goes back in time to cause the Bell riots to happen uh, because he takes the place of Gabriel Bell. Um, and in that sense, you're kind of saying, well, you know, does does everything need to have a secret? In that, in that case, it's fine because it's A, fictional, and B, they do actually establish that Gabriel Bell existed and would have launched the, the Bell riots if Cisco had never shown up. So that actually resolves itself in that regard. But when you have, it's when you have things like, oh yeah, aliens built the pyramids. That's what was happening. And, and not just in Star Trek, but in science fiction in general. Uh, as people have pointed out, one of the issues with uh, the Von Donneken kind of thing of, oh yeah, aliens built all the great, um, all the great monuments that exist. Um, there's a level of, at the very least, uh, cultural chauvinism going on, uh, where you can't just say, yeah, people were smart and knew how to build these things a long time ago. They, you know, the ancient Egyptians knew architecture really well. People from, you know, ancient uh, Mesoamerica knew how to build uh, a lot, do, how to, to accomplish things. They were scientifically advanced. Uh, if you say, oh, no, no, it was all aliens, because otherwise there's no explanation, you're kind of saying, why, why, why couldn't they do that? <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're raising that, that sort of issue. But, but even in the broader sense, it's too, it's, it's, you have to, um, it's, it's sort of like humans can never do anything special. There has to be a secret reason behind everything, um, you know, and and uh, that actually runs counter to what Star Trek's supposed to be about, in a sense. Uh, so, but of course, that's that's the that's the easy way to make an entertaining story is to, to reveal the secret uh, influence behind everything in history. So, you know, you're, there's there's that uh, tension that exists in that regard. I think that's a fantastic point about agency and about chauvinism. Because that ultimately, I think, is one of the key problems with the Eugenics Wars series, that rather than the uh, Eugenics Wars being a story of basically humans triumphing over genetic supermen, it becomes a story where the entire backdrop of human history in the late 20th century has very little to do with the actual people who lived there, but ultimately it just becomes a vast cosmic struggle between fictional genetic supermen and Gary Seven, another fictional genetic superman from another Star Trek episode. And in doing so, any agency or control is lost, and it becomes a very simplistic, cut-and-dry story of good and evil. And that ultimately does a disservice both to the historical events it purports to present, and ultimately makes for a story that is intellectually interesting, but pretty inert and lacking in nuance and part of that similarly when you apply that to for example the rwandan genocide is exactly what you encounter with von Danikanism, the suggestion that uh, people in the developing world are basically the stage upon which other cultures make their mark that vast historical events are appropriated and used solely as a way of racking up the body count for a fictional conflict in the 1960s now that's it. I can, as much as that sounds pretty harsh, I think it speaks to a tension in what Star Trek is trying to do when it depicts part, past history. On one hand, Star Trek wants to stay tied to our world because it is really important for the aspirational element of Star Trek that it is a future that we can someday achieve. If, in some sense, the future that we see in Star Trek is contingent upon stuff happening in the 1990s that never happened, and hence our timeline is irrevocably derailed off the Star Trek timeline, then A, that limits its ability to serve as a plausible future for us, and B, that actually limits some of the stories you can tell when relating back to our time. So I think the Eugenics Wars is an attempt to address that divergence and to present how these timelines could in some sense be reconciled. And I think there is an aspirational or idealistic element to that which is not entirely bad. It's just that there is some ham-fistedness in precisely how it's been brought about. Um, which I think speaks to a broader question of should Star Trek try to depict the future of our world or should Star Trek try to depict the future of their world? Should it try to emerge from contemporary events, or does it need to stay true to its own history? What are your thoughts on that? 
that, uh, I, I think we're in agreement on this. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as you say, if it's going to be aspirational, you know, you can't say, well, this is a, a fantasy world that never existed. It was an, it was an alternate reality. There's a, I think, I, I believe I've heard a fan theory about Star Trek that uh, the correct reality that we're headed towards, if nothing changes, if you take out time travel, uh, is what we see in the mirror universe. And that, in fact, it's some of the various shenanigans that we've seen uh, involving time travel, possibly including some of the stuff we've seen in Discovery, uh, that creates the Star Trek universe as it as we know it, uh, that in fact it wouldn't have, ex and in fact some have actually theorized that um, uh, when the mirror version of Philippa Georgiou goes back in time at the end of Discovery, or at, at the, in the current season of Discovery, um, that she's going to go back and create the correct Trex timeline, uh, which you know, that she'd existed. And that's why the mirror universe timeline and the, the Star Trek timeline that we know are so closely linked together because, uh, one was created by the other essentially. Um, but, um, I, as you say, I think that undermines a lot of Star Trek. If you do it that way, uh, it, it certainly takes away from the, the optimism that's supposed to be central to the show, which is, yeah, we can accomplish this. You know, we don't need secret powers vying, uh, or or time travel tinkering uh, to get there, and um, I think uh, I think that's my you know I I, don't, I think when you it, it's sort of an interesting idea of like well it's a it's a fantasy world and to be fair um, Star Trek and even science fiction in general people always say well it's not really about the future it's about our present and we're projecting a a fantasy reality onto what we think it's going to be like. Um, and, and, you know, you could, you could literalize that by saying, well, Star Trek is an alternate future or whatever. Um, but again, I think, you know, you have to, you have to insist on the, even though it's a, you know, it's a fiction, you have to insist on it being real. Um, it, it does tie into something I think we're going to talk about in a future episode, and we might have touched on it briefly, uh, that, um, when Roddenberry wrote the forward to uh, the, the motion picture, he actually wrote it as, well, the show was a laugh, but it was our, it was sort of an awkward depiction of what actually happened. It's not real. He created the license for it to be fictional within the reality of the show, and it created a wiggle room for people to make up their own canon of Star, uh, Star Trek, even if you want, you know, the word from on high from, from Broddenbury. <laughs> <laughs> to say no, it's okay. You can you can you can disavow some bits that you don't like. Uh, he created that that uh, that opening, and um, I think that uh, that and, and we've seen that all the way up into the present. Again, we're gonna uh, probably talk about it at a, at a later date. But um, I think that you do need to insist on Star Trek being our future, a potential of our future, even though, I mean, in as much as you have to say, well, but not really, you're saying, well, yeah, it's a science fiction show, so that's the part where we're, we're thing. I think the, what you're talking about with the eugenics words is very clever. I think that's fun. I'd love to read those, and, and it would be really interesting to sort of follow up on that, and I think solving that problem leads to kind of an interesting story, and it's a, it's, it's a situation where you play around and you have fun and you solve a continuity problem, but you've possibly reduced the show a bit by doing that. Um, and I, I think it's much better to just say, well, you know what? Records of that era are spotty at best. And when Kirk says it happened in 1992, it's because there was an atomic Holocaust a, a few years later and they just, <laughs> they messed up the dating. Basically it happened quite a bit later or maybe Khan. Well, we know Khan existed obviously because he was, he showed up. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I think it's better to just say, okay, let's let's just uh, skate on over that and <laughs> and 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 you create a sliding time scale for what happened. I do really like the idea that the eugenics wars actually happens in a few decades in which there's a profound '90s revival going on, and it was attributed to 1992 because in all historical records from the era, there's NSYNC and Backstreet Boys playing in the background. <laughs> It's got nothing to do with dating. It's just the it's just retro fever. <laughs> Why not? But I think that I think you're absolutely right to focus on that consistent emphasis upon our future. Because that speaks to why Space Seed chose 1992 to 1996 in the first place. Those dates weren't meant to be meaningful to the characters. They were meant to be meaningful to us as the audience. 
the original series is often profoundly vague on precisely how far in the future it takes place. For example, in um, Trelane's episode, um, The Squire of Gothos, there's implications that Star Trek actually takes place in the 29th century because he's observed Napoleonic outfits through a telescope from a planet a thousand light years away. So those dates aren't intended to represent a fixed point in time at a certain degree distant from the Star Trek characters because it's not entirely clear how long ago those events were to the original series. Instead, they're intended to signal to our audience, to the original series audience, that these men are from 30 years in your future. That is, that they are something which could happen to the audience or within the audience's lifetime. And so even in its greatest divergences from our history, Star Trek hasn't done it with the intent of blazing its own trail or suggesting the Star Trek universe is profoundly different. It's often done so in order to situate itself within the lifetime of its audience or in order to speak to the contemporary concerns of its audience. And that speaks to some of the benefits of Star Trek depicting the future of our world. Fundamentally, who cares if alternate humans in an alternate history could achieve utopia? It loses some of its force if we can't get there. But that, similarly, that said, Star Trek has not solely been about the steady, progressive journey towards utopia. Part of its force and part of its interest is that it presents it as a punctuated equilibrium, or even as a pattern of starts and reverses, moves towards unification being broken up by steps towards balkanization, great progressive gestures being followed by wars, dark moments in history giving rise to brighter tomorrows. And that's something which we've seen increasingly, not just in how Star Trek talks about its history, but in the future that is depicted by the Star Trek shows itself. And I think you've got some really interesting things to say about how the Federation and Starfleet seem to have evolved even within the time frame of the show itself. Yeah, yeah. So uh, actually, I uh, and I did want to mention, like, it, it is inadvertent, I'm sure. But, um, you know, like, even as going back, we already talked about um, um, Past Tense, which does not portray a world that lines up with the eugenics wars, really, uh, as they'd been envisioned. Um it's not really, you know, that's already, you're already seeing some difficulty navigating the ideas of, of what the history of Star Trek was supposed to be and how they're inconsistent at that particular point in the series. But on another sense, in another sense, um, that's actually true to life. Like, Things don't happen, as you say, all at once. There's not some moment where everything changes. And, like, the Bell Riots are, are portrayed as, for instance, you know, oh, that's the moment where everything changed. But at the same time, the show doesn't say, oh, and everything was great after that. It's like, well, no. I mean, we know there's going to be even... And Trek has never backed away from the fact that there's going to be a World War Three. There's going to be devastation. There's going to be a collapse of civilization coming up. So that can't have been the one thing that changed everything. Uh, but there never is in history. So that's complete... And you were talking about uh, later on things like the post-atomic horror, which is supposed to come after uh, the Vulcans make first contact with... Uh, with um, uh, humans, uh, which you could also link. I know that uh, the character of Colonel Green is linked to the post-atomic horror and uh, his own attempt to be a eugenicist, um, and uh, you know, so that would take place around that time as well. I think, um, and that seems like it doesn't fit as a narrative. It doesn't seem like it fits after they've met the Vulcans and mankind has been renewed and the world is uh, World War Three is over. Like as far as Star Trek Generations, the movie was was telling the was portraying history. It was trying to sort of an imply imply a moment of well, this is it. This is the moment where everything changes. Just as past tense was trying to say, this is it. This is the moment where everything changes. And of course, that never happens. There's never one moment where everything changes, even within. Um, a country, or I guess a planet, in the world of, of Star Trek, you know, there are different competing civilizations, civilizational values. There's, you know, you can have false starts, setbacks, things going back. Plus, of course, there's a question of, like, the Vulcans made first contact, but to who? Like, are there parts of the world that weren't contacted, possibly, uh, that were still struggling? And, of course, the Vulcans weren't, you know, weren't eager to start handing out 
warp technology to humans because they were such a mess at that point, as Enterprise makes very clear. <laughs> it took them a while to get their act together enough that they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll move forward now. You know, we've, we, it's been a hundred years and we think you've got your, your act together enough that we're okay with, with uh, giving you your, your warp drives and stuff like that. And, um, that also is something that's true. Um, well, maybe we should just stick to the Federation again for a moment, but, um, you know, and now this is something that we've now seen in Discovery, and which is very exciting to me uh, in Discovery, because we've now seen, uh, you know, the Federation face some serious setbacks, partly caused by, in this case, resource depletion and the loss of dilithium uh, in in uh, in the current thirty uh, first century uh, context of Discovery. Uh, we've seen how the Federation has suddenly been wrong-footed and, and put back, and many plants have left the Federation, everything's a bit of a chaotic uh, mess at that point, particular point, um, but the Federation's ideals survive, which is, and I think that's good, and I think that's something that Star Trek had to acknowledge at this particular time. They had to acknowledge that history doesn't stop. Up until very recently, Star Trek had been the story of, well, we reach a certain point, and we keep going, and everything's golden and sunshine from that point on. We hit we hit the point where history can end, or if, depending on who which historian you listen to, the part where history can begin, uh, which is a very nice thought. I mean, again, that's actually in a weird, uh, it's a weird Marxist thought. Um, I've, I've mentioned on my other podcast how science fiction sort of came from socialist thinking of the late 19th, early 20th century, and it got kind of adapted into a you know, popular culture in a way that didn't specifically attach it to socialist ideals. But essentially, that is why people say Star Trek's a socialist utopia, because it's borrowing a lot of the high-minded ideals of that uh, that mentality. Uh, and, it, and by the same token, it's like, well, if we can just get to a point where we're here, then we can really start exploring the galaxy. That was one of the fundamental ideas of Star Trek. And um, it's good, I think, to challenge that and, and question it uh, and, and, and hit the not the reset button, but have the, you know, to show that forces are never completely done away with. And it was happening even as far back as, um, I mean, Deep Space Nine certainly explored the idea that the Federation's maybe not as fully stable as you might want it to be. Uh, you know, they had they had reactionaries forming within uh, the Federation in the the famous episode everyone hates, but it was a really interesting idea story-wise, uh, which is He Without Sin, uh, Let He Who Is Without Sin Cast the First Stone. Um, where they talk about how there's kind of a, there's, for lack of a better term, a bunch of Jordan Petersons in the Federation who are talking about how we've gone weak and we have to get, we have to get our act together and start, you know, and that's, that's a fascinating idea. I really, I really like that. And I think it, it, it is, it was a good uh, story. And then of course there's section 31, which is again, something that creates a lot of problems for Star Trek, but I think it's something that you have to look at, um, it was a it was a way to deal with some of the historical realities that Star Trek could be accused of skipping over. Uh, any thoughts on that one, uh, Douglas? I am fascinated by this question of the unsteady march of the Federation, and by the prospect that its journey does not represent an unbroken upward trajectory, but instead is represented by fits and starts. For example, I think Star Trek Discovery, if anything enriches our understanding of the world that is depicted in the original series. Star Trek Discovery takes place 10 years before the original series and depicts a brutal, no-holds-barred war between the Federation and the Klingons. There's no explicit reference to that in the original series, but there are references to Klingon aggression, and indeed to a history of distrust and conflict between the two nations that is consistent with what we see in Disco. It places Errand of Mercy into greater context, for example, if we understand both Kirk if we understand Kirk, at least, as having grown up in an environment of conflict with the Klingons, of having recent combat experience against the Klingons, and of his stubborn attempts to displace the Klingons from Organia as driven by those experiences. It makes the Organian intervention at the end even more remarkable if it is an attempt to prevent a war that is as savage and unbridled as that which we saw in Disco. So it's not simply a matter of an unbroken upward journey from Enterprise to the original series. 
the hundred years in between are characterized by conflict. They are characterized by a struggle between the scientific and military imperatives of the Federation. They're not purely a question of a seamless transition into the world as depicted by the 1960s, but they're a tapestry on which we can draw analogies for our own contemporary experiences. Similarly, institutions change over the long period of time in Star Trek. You've noted that Disco has depicted Section 31, and Section 31, as we'll discuss, is in many ways an enormously problematic organisation. But some of the discrepancies in how it's depicted are entirely attributable, arguably, simply to the fact that we are looking at an organisation over 200 years of time that the relatively small and obscure Section 31 we see in Deep Space Nine can, isn't at odds with the much larger quasi-open organisation we see in Discovery, but is a result of the discrediting and destruction of the Discovery organisation. So, Star Trek as history is fascinating because it's not purely a question of a linear journey. Instead, it gives us inspiration in our contemporary struggles by suggesting that history doesn't end when the Vulcans arrive, but that the struggle needs to be maintained and that we do have to continue to strive to better ourselves, even in the face of setbacks, and even given that sometimes that struggle might not succeed. Yeah, um, actually, uh, that uh, one of the most interesting things, it was brought up by, there's a guy called uh, Josh uh, Marsfelder, who wrote, uh, uh, he used to write a blog about Star Trek, and he, he had some interesting thoughts. He looked through it at every episode and so on. Uh, and he's coming from a very anarchist perspective on Star Trek, and one of the things he pointed, he he, he became very cynical about Star Trek's optimism and, the, and Federation. Uh, one thing he pointed out that was really interesting to me was just that, you know, for a supposedly utopian uh, society where everything's nice, uh, the Federation sure gets into a lot of wars. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's not inconsistent in the sense that, well, humanity is united and these other races are united together and the Federation is a very peaceful organization, possibly a, you know, a post-scarcity civilization where everyone's needs are attended to. That's been fairly consistent as Star Trek goes on, even though, again, in the early days of uh, the, the original series, there were implications that they, yeah, they had currency and yeah, they had, they even had, you know, sex trafficking, as which is kind of a problematic thing that was in there um but um the um the uh uh you know by the by the time of even the later original series you're you're looking at it as kind of a, a as a as a as a post-scarcity utopia um but the um uh, what's interesting is that yeah yeah they're they still have trade agreements but with other races more than anything and they still have wars a lot and all the kind of stuff that you would see in the modern increasingly globalized era that we live in uh has been you know applied outward to star trek in a way that doesn't always make a ton of sense from that regard um but it is certainly true that you know again this is why things like section 31 and 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 all these ideas were brought in because people wanted to sort of explore the cracks in the idea of federate the federation being this perfect utopia. Um, there's, uh, but as you say, there are, there are definitely uh, stops and starts and evolutions and pushbacks. Uh, we were, I, I had pegged this for the next episode, but I think it's actually very relevant. And I want to talk about it right now. One of the most interesting ways you can look at that is not the Federation itself, uh, but the Klingon Empire. Now, I'm really, really fascinated by the way the Klingons have an ersatz history that's been built up over the decades of Star Trek. Um, you know, they went from just, oh, they're the mean guys. They're the, you know, they're they're the they're the opponent. They're violent. They're they're hateful. If you like, they're the communist Chinese and even kind of racist if you if at certain points. Um, they they um, that's all they were in the original series. In fact, they were brought in because basically the Romulans, ironically, were too expensive to do as a, uh, their makeup was too expensive. So the Klingons, who later became much more elaborate visually, um, were brought in to be to replace them as this conquering uh, group that were going to come in and, and be an opponent for, for Star Trek. Um, by Next Generation, of course, there was the idea of, well, we're trying to make peace with them and we're trying to work together, which is something that doesn't 
it's not in any way consistent. In yesterday's Enterprise, uh, you know, well, in uh, Star Trek VI, of course, they imply, once again, well, that was the moment where we made peace with the Klingon Empire, was was uh, the Kittimer Accords. Um, but, you know, in Star Trek, in yesterday's Enterprise, they imply that, well, the, the Klingons were still a little dodgy because then there was this one big moment with the Enterprise C where it was destroyed defending the Klingons. So that was quite a bit after the Kittimer occurred. So what exactly happened? And and while you could argue, oh, that's inconsistent, it's like, no, that, that's actually very consistent. You know, evolution between two different countries, their relationships, will evolve over time, 100%. Um, and then, of course, in the course of Deep Space Nine, the, the Klingons once again uh, end up uh, declaring war on the Federation. So it's not, it, in no way is there a, uh, a consistent relationship between uh, the two. Uh, and, and the fact that they keep trying to make it work and trying it one way and trying it another way, and it works this way and it works another way, um, that's that's very true to life. It's not, you know, it's it's accidental. Uh, if you wanted to be, you know, cruel about it, you could say, oh, that's inconsistent writing. But it, it actually fits perfectly well with, with, how, um, with, with how history works. Uh, and actually, um, I do want to say this because I'm, I'm really fascinated by how Klingons uh, evolved. Because if you look at uh, Judgment, which was the uh, Enterprise episode, which is technically one of the first real looks we get at Klingon uh, society, um, and it, it's really fascinating. They explicitly kind of talk about how their society doesn't seem to work that well, but it might be it's because it might be degenerating into fascism. And then you get things like um, uh, uh, Takuvma and, and, and the whole thing on Discovery uh, in the early days, and then, of course, the Next Generation era, and things like <laughs> their literal messiah returning, which is fascinating to me. Uh, the fact that most of Deep Space Nine, most of Next Generation Deep Space Nine take place at a time when, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, it's not, maybe not Jesus, but certainly um, Muhammad has come back and claimed the throne of the empire, or Buddha, if you like, has claimed the throne of the empire. Uh, and and uh, the Klingons don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> They're still acting the way they were. It didn't lead to a radical shift in Klingon culture. But that's actually one of the reasons I'd really like to see what happens to the Klingons next. And I'm really interesting for when they show up on uh, Discovery, because... Uh, I always feel like, yeah, at some point we should see the Klingon Empire and it would be radically different. Maybe they're the peaceful ones now. Maybe the Federation of the Warlike Ones and the Klingons have become really peaceful. Who knows? There's all kinds of possibilities that we could get into uh, with Discovery. But that's something I'll be watching really closely. I am so excited for our discussion of the Klingons in the next episode. Um, and I, I don't want to preempt it, but there's a couple of fascinating things there I want to pick up on. The first is, yes, I hadn't even thought about how much fun it would be to see the Klingons on Disco Season 4, but I am so excited for it. I think, because there are a couple of different avenues you can go. Even you could have the Klingons having become peaceful, having, for example, suggested that the ultimate struggle, the ultimate victory has to be self-control rather than fighting over others. So... The, you know, the imperative towards war and conflict being driven towards the resolution of inner conflict. And so you have Klingons, the Vulcans of tomorrow. Alternatively, <laughs> yep. you could even... What we've seen in Star Trek, and one of the things that makes the Klingons interesting, is that they are an intensely factionalized society. So much of the arguably inconsistent betrayals of the Klingons that we've gotten can just be attributed to, oh... No, that's the House of A. The House of B is completely different. And if anything, in the, another interesting way to go with the Klingons in the 31st century is that there's no longer a clear idea on what a Klingon is, that you've seen the fact, factionalism inherent in their society taken to its logical consequence, that the Klingons are, have effectively become as diverse and disparate as the Federation, or even speciated, given that we've already seen there's a lot of different things a Klingon can look like. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to go back to that that mention to Kalos, the Klingon Messiah, because that raises a lot of really interesting questions. Star Trek has accidentally said something, or quasi-accidentally said something really interesting with the clone of Kalos, in that the Klingons did have Jesus come back, and it didn't make a difference because Jesus 
wasn't able to do anything without the power to back up his words. He's given a, Kalos is given a ceremonial position as emperor, which Gauron uses to legitimise his own rule, while doing exactly what he wants. And so even in Deep Space Nine, when Kalos speaks out against the invasion of Cardassia, it makes absolutely no difference, because no one's listening to him. And that, going back to what you said before, is a really good warning against the idea that there's any one saviour figure and any one singular moment at which history is going to fundamentally change on its axis. Fundamentally, the same for- if the same forces driving conflict, if the same forces driving internecine strife are still there, then the return of the Messiah isn't going to make a difference. Indeed, all that could happen would be that the Messiah props up the way things already run. And so that tendency to warn against utopian vision, or that tendency to warn against the idea of the end of history, has been a really useful check on some of Star Trek's wilder excesses. And that's part of what's made Picard and Discovery so interesting, because, to adopt an extremely good phrase you've used in your notes, they grapple with the idea of the mortality of utopia. That maybe the world we see in the 24th century Star Trek shows, the brief window in the 2360s and the 2370s in which you can be a saint in paradise, maybe that's not how humankind ends up. Maybe that is a brief equilibrium with periods of conflict and uncertainty on either side. Maybe if you don't keep fighting for that world inside the Federation as well as outside the Federation, it can decay, it can decline. And so Picard, depicting a world which is recognisably that of the next generation, but in which there is a degree of tiredness, there is a degree of cynicism, there is a degree to which people have lost sight of those ideals that define the next generation, and in which that needs to be rediscovered and needs to be fought for. That, I think, is far more interesting from an ideological standpoint than if we had simply seen a world in which the verities of the 2360s had stayed eternal and fixed. And ultimately, going back to our original question about Star Trek maintaining a coherent internal history, the worry is if you maintain a history that's completely fixed, that, again, it becomes an unattainable ideal. The idea that either you reach that equilibrium state and then you stay there, or alternatively, that that equilibrium state is only available to people who had a very different 1990s to what we did. Star Trek's vision is only meaningful if it's one that we can achieve, but it's only one that we can achieve, given the way the world really works, if it's one that needs to be built and defended and improved upon, rather than just being that you finally find the princess in the right castle. Yeah. I think you've. I, I. That's. That's so bang on. I think that's a perfect uh, place to end it. In fact, but y- you know, you're absolutely right. That's. Uh, that's. That's something that inadvertently Star Trek has now portrayed in uh, a beautiful way. Uh, that that you know, as comforting as the utopia is, um, and it's something that Star Trek's always meant to show uh, and to be inspiring and aspirational. It's you know, to really be an engaging story, you're going to have to introduce that note of uncertainty and in, 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 in another way there's that's hopeful too because you don't just even if everything goes wonderfully to say well history ended there's a level to which that you know that that's restrictive that 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 puts you in a box and and uh means well so nothing can change then uh that doesn't sound great no, you know that that's not how the world works that's not how history works so uh you know as much as we don't want things to, uh, you know, good, good things to end as much as we say all good things. Um, you know, that, that's, uh, that's something, uh, that, that is probably pro- right and proper for Star Trek to be dealing with just the idea of, of, um, of history is something that can never quite end. And, um, and as much as uh, it, it's another way in which Star Trek is commonly portrayed as, a certain thing. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the next episode too. But pe- this idea of well, Star Trek is this, and then when you look at it, it becomes actually almost the opposite of that because it s- adheres so <laughs> heavily to what it supposedly is. And in this case, it's because it's oh, it's a utopia. It ends up actually, uh, you know, uh, complicating and 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 questioning the idea of utopia in really interesting ways. And 
that's uh, that's that's what makes it cool. There's one. There's just one more thing I want to say before we wrap up. Sorry, um, uh, because I, I I think we've reached the right point. The one last thing I want to say is this. The biggest difference between the Star Trek world and our world isn't the genetic supermen infesting the 1990s. In many ways, the biggest unreconcilable difference that we've seen between the world of Star Trek and ours is that our world has a show called Star Trek in it and Star Trek doesn't. And that, that, on one hand, seems like you're elevating the importance of a particular TV show. But it actually, in itself, provides an interesting perspective. The Star Trek world is one in which the history of science, technology, and culture have not been shaped by the experience of the Star Trek franchise. There are millions of people who haven't been exposed to the possibility of a better world, or based on reason, logic, and the rational resolution of differences based upon the ideals of a TV show from the 1960s. Maybe, in our world, the eugenics wars didn't happen because the scientists who created Karnuni and Singh were inspired by Star Trek to go to work for NASA instead. Maybe, in our world, um, you didn't see a manned mission to Titan in 2018 because the people who were going to... because the parents of the Sean Christopher were irrevocably driven apart because of their passionately different views on Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Maybe in the, our world, you're not going to see World War Three because crucial pre-war talks will be fueled by endless debate about Kirk versus Picard. Maybe the absence of Star Trek from the Star Trek universe is what makes it the Star Trek universe, and maybe the presence of Star Trek in our universe is what's going to help us get to the future that that show ex- <laughs> depicts. On that note, I, I'm very happy yes, to wrap up yeah. this episode. Or you could say that, you know, that was the key. That's what created the Mirror Universe, is that uh, nobody, somebody from the Mirror Universe went back in time to create Star Trek and we could watch it. That's that's what happened. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so uh, that's uh, that's it for now. Um, once again, I'm Adam Prosser and I'm with Douglas uh, McDonald-Norman. Uh, I did want to mention uh, my other podcast, uh, What Mad Universe, about science fiction and pulp more generally, uh, is available at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe, or just Google What Mad Universe Podcast. Uh, I have a Patreon. Uh, We just did a really big episode about Doctor Who as I'm recording this, which uh, you can get the full version if you subscribe to my Patreon. But uh, anyway, enough plugging. Um, So, um, but uh, anyway... uh, Live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the other side.